I took a picture of Andy when he was up on the stage. And uh, that's how we will always remember Pastor Chris Chi. <laughs> hey, uh, so good to be here today. It's so good to be with um, all of you, little kids, kids, catapult, and uh, adults alike. Uh, we're going to look at a big passage today. Would you turn your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 3, starting verse 7. We're going to go all the way through chapter 4, verse 13. So if you're uh, sitting with your child, and uh, you might open up the app or the Bible and, and allow your child to look on with you. And I'm going to tell you what the author is trying to accomplish through this passage. Um, the author is going to try to get you to make a decision. Okay? Um, and he, he's trying to make you and me decide not tomorrow, not later, but today. And I know this to be the case because he says it three times. Look at chapter 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Now look at chapter 3, verse 15. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice... Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Now jump to chapter 4, verse 7, the second half. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Three times the author is saying, Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. This is a quote from Psalms chapter uh, 95, in which the writer of Hebrews wrote in a letter and, and got sent to churches across uh, the, uh, the Mediterranean, and it is applicable to all of us today. And today, uh, you're going to have to make a decision. If the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart, if the Bible is clear, if your conscience is, is telling you something, you either have a choice to listen Today, not tomorrow, not after finals, not when things are more uh, settled in my life. Or if you don't obey and listen today, what you are deciding by default then is you are hardening your heart. That's the two choice. We're going to look at this passage uh, by looking at two groups of people. The first group of people that we're going to look at are the uh, wilderness generation. And they are the people whom he will call they. It's a, it's a group of people that existed in the past, and he talks about them in the past tense. And then he's going to talk about uh, a group of people that I'm going to call the we generation because he, he says to you and then us. And so he includes his readers, himself, and all of us. So the wilderness generation, and the we generation. So let's look at, first of all, the rebellion of the wilderness generation. So he, he began in chapter uh, 3, verses 7 and 8. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, he said, okay, you need to decide. Are you going to obey or are you going to harden your hearts? Like those, as in our, your fathers, our fathers who long time ago 
uh, in the, uh, in, when they were being tested in the wilderness, they put God to the test and they rebelled, having saw God's work for 40 years. So it's in that little short uh, two verses, we are told two things about the wilderness generation. The first um, thing that we understand about the wilderness generation is that they were um, asked to trust God for rest, for rest. They were asked to trust God for rest. You know, um, we know, uh, if, you, if you are somewhat familiar with the Bible, we're talking about the Hebrew people who lived in Egypt for 400 years, and they were enslaved by the Egyptian, and God was gracious to them. God liberated them through a series of miracles, the 10 plagues, and they parted the Red Sea, and, he, and they miraculously escaped the mighty uh, Egyptian empire, and in the middle of the desert, God provided for them on a regular basis. But of all the things that God provided for them, probably the thing that was most persistent, not necessarily spectacular, but persistence, is that of manna and uh, one of the strange new commandments that God gave to the Hebrew people called the Sabbath. And um, the author in chapter 4, verse 3 here, makes an indirect reference for we who have believed enter that rest for as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken somewhere of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And if you read the whole passage, the author talks a lot about resting, resting, resting. And when God was working and, and with the wilderness generation, he talked a lot about the Sabbath and how they need to rest in order for them to go into rest. Now, I want to, and then, you know, because we just uh, looked at the book of Deuteronomy earlier this year, uh, we covered this idea of the Sabbath. And I want you to know that the Sabbath was a big deal to the Hebrew people. They were coming out of Egypt, and God, was, God uh, spoke to them and said, you're going to be my people, and I'm going to be your God. And one of the markers is that I want you to keep the Sabbath. It's a big deal. It's, it was such a big deal that when God said, you know, let me give you a summary of all of the laws in a bite-sized, uh, tweetable, um, you know, short form, and, and so let me break it down, just the Ten Commandments, and one of those commandments was keep the Sabbath. I mean, it was up there along with do not murder, do not um, sleep with your neighbor's wife, do not steal, and do not neglect the Sabbath. That on um, one day of week, you uh, cease from working, uh, doing other activities, for the sake of focusing on the Lord. Can you imagine you come to church one day and, hey, how you doing? Man, I've been so busy. Um, I, you know, my work is just, man, it's got me. Um, we're on vacation. Uh, my kids have, have um, a spring ball. We've been traveling. And then and my, my other kids have danced. And so, you know, actually, I'll, I'll be honest with you, but I, I haven't been... Um, worshiping for the last few months, but it's all good. How are you doing? 
yeah, yeah, I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Um, you know, I, I uh, robbed a liquor store last week. I, uh, I went into my neighbor's house when he wasn't there, and they had a big, giant TV, so I stole that from them. Um, but besides that, I'm all good. Do you understand when the he- original Hebrew people thought of Sabbath, they thought of it that seriously. That God said, don't murder, don't steal, don't sleep with your neighbor's wife, and don't neglect the Sabbath. It was that big of a deal for, for God and how he wanted them to look at the Sabbath. It was, you know, the problem with setting aside one day a week uh, for, uh, for just sitting with the Lord is so counter-cultural to who we are in America and who we are just as a small culture. I, 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 and I, I say this uh, once in a while, that we, the problem with Living Hope is y'all are overachievers. You're just a group of very busy people. Um, and, you know, when, when the pandemic started and we were forced to lock down at home, not go anywhere, a lot of us are, oh, my goodness, we can finally rest a little bit. And parents are going, yeah, I can rest, until you realize having kids at home took more work than sending them to school, right? And then, and, and, and then we thought, you know, finally I can catch up on my Netflix or Korean drama. And then we became so... Uh, overly zealous for that, we became tired of, of binging whatever shows um, we were uh, watching. And then when it started to open up, it's like, well, we can finally vacation and we're so ambitious and, and driven with our vacation. We come back from vacation more tired than when we started vacation. Isn't that how we are? A survey done early this year revealed that 60% of American adults felt like they are more tired than ever. The Lord says, said to the Hebrew people, the wilderness generation, one day a week, one out of seven, I want you to cease from trying to be productive, and I want you to rest in me. There are two reasons why God tells the Hebrew people that the Sabbath is a unique uh, marker for who you are as people. The first is this, that Sabbath is supposed to remind them that God is the point. The Sabbath is supposed to remind them that God is the point and that they are not. Um, the, the concept of the Sabbath, the command to Sabbath was found in Exodus chapter 20, but in Exodus chapter 31, verses 13 through 15, he clarifies why. He says this, above all, you shall keep my Sabbath, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Six days shall be done, work uh, be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. The Sabbath is supposed to be, listen carefully, a solemn Rest, holy, set apart, designated to the Lord. If I, if I say to you, hey, you know, um, I have set apart this meal for you, 
You expect then that I'm not going to nibble on it or I'm not going to give it to someone else. If I have made it holy or set set it apart for you, you think, okay, that's for me then. It's dedicated to me, holy me. Um, The Lord said to the Hebrew people, the Sabbath shall be a solemn rest, holy to me. That's my day. You know, the problem that we oftentimes have, even as Christians, is this, that we think that Saturdays and Sunday exist so that we can do Monday through Friday. J.D. Greer says that Sabbath is not a rest from our primary pursuits of life. Sabbath is ultimately why we are alive. We weren't created for a job. We were created for God. The second reason he gives as to why the Sabbath exists is that Sabbath not only reminds us that God is the point, but Sabbath reminds us that God provides, that God provides in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12 through 15, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Okay, I want you to keep that. Okay, six days you shall do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. If you remember the, the, the Hebrew people's history. They were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, and, and life was just really hard. Life was hard, and they were making bricks, and they were just manual, hard labor, barely eking out um, an existence. God liberated them, but then God brought them. He said, God's going to bring them to the land of milk and honey that's later on in Canaan, but uh, before they get there, they were in the wilderness. It's desert, No water, no food. It was hard. They wouldn't have been able to survive. But what God did was, in the desert, God miraculously provided for them what you and I know as manna. And I want you to um, observe something. God miraculously provided food for the Hebrew people, but God did not send Grubhub to their doors and saying, here, is, here are prepared meals, all kosher for you. Instead, God provided manna on the ground, and he told them, now go, work hard at collecting the manna. So if you don't go and collect, you'll starve but go work hard to collect the manna. Uh, this manna that should not exist in the desert, but I provided them for you. But you do that. You work hard for six days. But on the seventh day, you shall not collect manna. And in fact, uh, every day when you go out and collect manna, you're supposed to only gather as much as you're going to eat for the day because any more that you collect will rot. It will spoil. So you can only collect enough to eat for one day. So, it, so unless you're diligent and are able to go out and collect enough for that one day, you go hungry. And God said, okay, you can only collect enough for a day, but 
the day before the Sabbath, you are to collect enough for two days. And only on that day, when you collect enough for two days, uh, the, the half that you have remaining will not spoil on the Sabbath. So on the Sabbath day, you don't have to go collect manna. And what God was trying to say to them is that six days a week, work hard. Study for your AP exam and, and strive to, uh, to get your early acceptance at that dream school. You know, work hard. Go have integrity at your work. Don't cut corners. Honor your employers. Work hard at, at the things that God has entrusted to you. But one day a week, one day a week, you need to just trust that the Lord will provide that the, the manna will not spoil, that God will do his goodness in your life regardless. It does not mean, by the way, we get all that we want, but we get all that we need. And what God was saying to the Hebrew people back then, he says to us now, and it's so counterintuitive, uh, that we had to, they had to, and we have to trust God to rest so that we may flourish. God wants us to flourish, but that is done by us resting, and we can rest by trusting in the Lord. So uh, when God was talking to the wilderness generation, he said, I want you to trust me through rest, and also, though, I want you to trust me through risk. I want you to trust me through risk. The author refers to this generation as a rebellious generation and, and how they tested the Lord. And there were many times in which the Hebrew people, during the course of their journey in the wilderness, they, they really grumbled a lot. They complained about, oh, there's no water in the desert. Oh, manna again. I'm not vegetarian. Where's the protein, God? God sent quail for that. Aaron and Moses, how come they're in charge? How come, why can't I be in charge? Um, the, the walks are so long. There's, there's no scenery here. Moses, you've been gone way too long at bringing down the Ten Commandments. Uh, we created a golden calf to worship just in case. There's a lot of complaining. But when the author talks about the rebellion, he's talking about a specific instance. Now, look at chapters 3, verses 16 through 19. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses and with whom he uh, was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest but to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So there was an unbelief which caused them, their bodies to fall in the wilderness. What was that unbelief? It was that time in which God said, I'm going to bring you from Egypt into Canaan through the wilderness. And when they were ready to enter into Canaan, he, uh, uh, they sent 12, tribes, uh, 12 spies, one from Egypt, each tribe to go and scout out the land, they came back and gave this report. It's too hard. The risk is too great. If we go in, we'll surely lose. And our wives and our children will become a plunder. 
I'm not, we're not ready for that. We want to go back to Egypt. It is interesting uh, that the, the Hebrew people uh, experienced just amazing miracles in Egypt, Jordan, and in the wilderness. Um, and they were asked to trust God for the mundane by resting, by giving up one-seventh of their productivity. And God said, now I want you to trust me with the big thing. And they said, no. I, I will be honest with you. Even as I was thinking about preaching this particular message, um, and for you know, months ago when I knew that we would have to um, present this message, I knew that this particular set of topics would be one that uh, I don't practice well. If someone were to ask me, um, you know, Steve, when do you rest? I, I don't know. What, what is that? I, like a lot of you, I, I, I just don't rest that well. I don't, in fact, like to rest. Um, vacation oftentimes means finding something else to get busy with for me. And that's how I am. And I don't always know or, or am good at solemn rest where I'm just sitting holy to the Lord where this time is not productivity, but it's just for you, you and me. Uh, I'll tell you another thing that I am not good at, and I, I think that there are a lot of people at this church, um, and, and sometimes we kind of gather people who are similar to ourselves. Uh, we're not, I'm not very good at risk-taking. I, I tend to be very methodical. I think things through, and that's good for you because, like, you know, um, as a pastor, I, we don't lead church into reckless uh, decisions, etc. cetera. Uh, we, I, by the time we make a decision or I say something, I, I've thought it through a bunch of times, uh, you know, I've weighed the pros and the cons and the such. And I know that um, a lot of you know that I used to be a computer engineer and I uh, um, graduated from UCLA, and, and don't be too impressed by the, when I applied to UCLA, uh, or catapult soon, when I applied to UCLA, the acceptance rate was 70%, okay? And so don't be too impressed with old people who, who graduate from good schools. <laughs> um, but I had a, a you know, high-paying job uh, as an engineer, and, and you know, I wanted to go to seminary, so I moved to Texas to go to seminary, and you, you, you know, I can paint a nice narrative of how I gave up everything, etc. But just like a Steve Chang, you know, I, it was a very calculated move. I went to my uh, engineering company and said, hey, we do work in Texas. Why don't you send me as a field engineer? I did my Jedi mind trick. Why don't you pay me the field engineer pay, which is 20% more than if I was just to here. And why don't you send me back to California twice a year so I can see my beloved family? They said, sure. So I, I moved to Texas to be a field engineer for my aerospace company to work at, uh, work for General Dynamics, which, I, which was out in Fort Worth, Texas. Um, so it, it may seem like the narrative was I gave up everything, took this big risk, but I, you know, I, I, I'm not a big risk taker. In fact, this is my confession. If God had told me, Steve, I want you to give up everything. Take your wife and children, go to a third world country 
where your, your children and your wife's life would be at stake or their well-being would be at stake. I will be honest with you. I don't know what I would do. I don't know if I trust God enough, if I have that much faith to say that God's goodness will still see through. God led this wilderness generation and, he, and the writer of Hebrews uses them as an example of what uh, it means to trust God in rest and, in tr- and trusting in God in terms of risk. Now, he uses that as an anchor to talk about the we generation, okay? Um, there are three things that he tells um, uh, uh, you, the first audience, the, the, the readers of the letters, us, including himself, right? And then, which includes all of us, okay? Uh, the three things. The first thing is, let us listen. Let us listen. Now, look at chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, now, I want you to listen for the second person, you. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. In verses 12 through 15, and when the author says you, you have to be thinking, okay, this is talking to me, too. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence uh, firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. He says that any time that the Holy Spirit speaks, any time the word of God convicts, any time your conscience is is bothering you about something, it is an opportunity for you to respond in one of two ways. We can listen and obey, or we can harden our hearts. And listen and obey has to be done today, not tomorrow. If we don't, we're hardening our hearts. He talks about them and us and the potential. We can harden our hearts. We can have an unbelieving heart, verse 12. We can fall away from the living God, verse 12, or be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin when we know what is true, what God wants of us, and we do not obey today, we are hardening our hearts. Let me uh, draw this illustration. Now, I don't know if your kids like um, a chocolate cake. Chocolate cake. I, I don't know if many children like chocolate cake, but I remember Costco used to sell these big chocolate cakes. Do you remember those like, like one-foot chocolate cake? like triple chocolate frosting, huge, right? Once in a great while, my family would buy one of those just for the, I don't know, it's for, uh, for just indulgences, I don't know what. Um, imagine you bought a, a huge chocolate cake and you put it in your refrigerator because you have guests coming the next day and, and you need all of it, etc. and your child saw that. There's that delicious just gorgeous chocolate cake in our refrigerator. 
that has not been touched. Mom and dad are upstairs. And it's like, you can't help but to think about this chocolate cake now. And you go quietly. You open the refrigerator. Oh my gosh, it's there, it's true. All of it. You close the cup. I know I'm not supposed to touch it. I know we have people coming over. I know mom doesn't like me eating chocolate cake after 9 p.m. Oh my gosh, it's still there. What do I do? Oh, I know what. I know mom doesn't want me to eat it, but the deceitfulness of the chocolate cake is speaking to me. I'll gently bring it out. Bring it out to the dining room table. I know. I'll eat it from the back. Mom won't notice. So you get a big spoon and you start like, like digging into the cake from the back and eating it. Oh, it's delicious. You get some cold milk. And, uh, you're like, oh, this, is, this is so good. And then you hear, and you know, moms, they like have a sixth sense. Honey, are you eating the chocolate cake? And, and you suddenly freeze. You know you shouldn't be doing that. You hear the voice of mom, but you still want to eat that cake. So what do you do? You, you close your ears to mom so you can say, I didn't hear what you were saying. I didn't know that I wasn't supposed to eat. This is the dilemma, by the way, that Christians find themselves in. We want to indulge in sin, but we know that God says no. What do we do? The only way to peacefully eat our chocolate cake is to close our ears, harden our hearts. When God convicts and we do not obey today, what we are doing is closing our ears. And it becomes easier and easier to no, not listen. So the first thing that God says to us, to you, to me, is let us listen. Secondly, let us fear, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. You know, in our modern Christianity, we don't believe that we should fear God that we should only enjoy God, have him as our friend, and, and be loved by God. We, we, we want to treat God like a glorified um, Santa Claus puppy, best friend, girlfriend, something like that. If any Christian preacher or teacher says, no, we need to fear God, we think, no, that's, that's a, uh, something archaic. We don't do that. But no, no, the scripture is very clear that we ought to fear God that we ought to fear his holiness and his character, that we sometimes belittle God way too much. And he references what happened with the Hebrew people, that God chose them, but because they refused to listen, to obey, to, to live in trust, uh, we know the consequence, the outcome, that generation died in the wilderness. By the way, I want to make it clear, it does not mean that all the, the Hebrew who, uh, people who escaped Egypt 
and died in the wilderness, it does not mean they all went to hell. It is not a, a salvific thing, but they perished in the wilderness. That is an earthly consequence. Okay? So, that, so this, this is what this means for us. And he, uh, that is a metaphor. Um, he, um, the author is using that as an illustration of how we ought to look at uh, our spiritual lives. That even if we are saved or so-called bound for heaven or are Christians, if we have the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit and we still refuse to listen to the Holy Spirit or the, or the Word of God and its conviction, what happens is that we don't enter into rest um, meaning we don't get the blessings and the goodness that God wants to give to us, the promises that God wants to give to us in our lifetime. We don't get it. So he said, fear that. Verse um, 6, uh, verse uh, 2 and 6, for good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Verse 6, and those who formerly received the good news fail to enter because of disobedience, okay? Now, the third thing, uh, we, ought not, not, we ought to listen, we need to fear, and we need to strive. We need to strive, and it feels like a little bit of a contradiction because we're told to, to rest as well, but look at chapter 4, verse 11. Let us, therefore, strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Now, one of the things that the writer of Hebrews kept saying in this particular passage is that, hey, your hearts will be hardened, your, uh, your hearts will go astray, you will be disobedient. One of the problems oftentimes is that um, we, we, we harden our hearts because we want to eat that chocolate cake. And so after a while, what happens is that we start believing that chocolate cake is good for us, that not listening to God is okay. We start believing in that, and, and our heart becomes so calloused in that way. And so what we need is to work hard to counter the deceitfulness of our own hearts. So the Word of God is like the GPS system that our heart needs to write itself in. So look at carefully, verses 12 through 13, you may have heard this past, uh, these two verses, but you probably did not know that it was in this context, okay? It's because the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. For those of us who want to harden our hearts, and we sometimes don't even realize that our hearts have been hardened, and we're, we're nibbling away at our chocolate cake and trying to muffle the voice of our God, the way we counter that is by proactively um, engaging the Word of God because the Word of God can pierce into the thoughts and intentions of our heart. In verse 13, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Romans 10, 17, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. 
the word of God counters the deceitfulness of sin in us, the, our propensity to harden our hearts so that we can do whatever we want. But if you say, but, but Pastor C, the word of God, the Bible is sometimes so archaic. There are t- parts of the word of God that I don't agree with, but that's precisely the point. If we do only what we want to do, only what which we agree with, only what which the culture agrees with, that's no longer the word of God. That's just your opinion. not true. Uh, Ultimately, though, all this comes down to trust. Trust. Will you trust? Will you trust God enough to rest and to risk? Uh, He gave us a roadmap of how we do that. We need to listen, we need to fear, and we need to strive. But will you trust? I'm going to ask the band to come up at this time, and, and, and I'm going to just finish with this illustration. Um, you know, I, I have a, a, just a very, very handsome grandson. And, um, um, and we just, you know, my wife and I love him to death, and we adore seeing him. Like when my daughter brings him over or when we go to their house and, we love seeing him and, and observing his expression when he first uh, sees me or my wife. Um, I've heard that my grandson sometimes, you know, when he's in a new place and meets strangers, he's a little bit like apprehensive. But when he sees us, um, more my wife, but when he sees us, he, he normally is, I, you're accepted. I approve. And the way that happens, it's not because we're inherently better looking, but it is a cycle where my grandson gives us a measure of trust and we respond in love. And because we respond in love, the grandson gives a little bit more trust and we re- respond back with goodness. It's lunchtime, it's playtime, it's Bible time. And then he opens up a little more. And then after a while, he realizes, okay, going to grandma, grandpa's house is, is a good thing. These people are positive people. But good things happen in my life. And so I will trust more. I, will, I, I can relax. I can go on the swing. And it's okay. Because I trust these people. Our relationship with God is like that. God says, Trust just doesn't automatically appear. Uh, You can't just will it. You have to spend time with me. You have to be willing to let your guard down. You have to be willing to say that what I say is true for you and risk some of you to say, God, I'm going to risk it. I'm going to rest it. And then when God displays his goodness and love upon us, then we go, oh, I get it. It's true. And then I trust him some more. But if we don't, if somewhere along the loop, we stop, we become selfish, we start eating our chocolate cake, we hold our ears, we, we just have a hard time trusting. And we wonder why we can't believe. We wonder why we're filled with anxiety. We wonder why I can't stop 
but to strive for acceptance and identity. Jesus said, come unto me, all who are weak, weary, and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your goodness in our life. I thank you for the men and women in this room and and, and the patio and and at home. I, I pray that that you will continue through the work of the cross to continue to remind us that we can trust you, not only for salvation, but life here. And and allow us, Lord, um, to rest and risk in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.